Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. My name is Eric Wickland, and I'm the Technology and Innovations Editor for Health Leaders. In today's episode, we're talking to Corbin Petro, co-founder and CEO of Eleanor Health, a Massachusetts-based healthcare organization focused on expanding access to integrated, evidence-based outpatient care and recovery for people living with substance abuse issues. We're here today to talk about how to address the growing substance abuse epidemic in rural America and what new tools and strategies might work best for this population. Hello. Hi, Eric. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem at all. Thanks for joining us today. Let's let's get right into it, really. Um, you know, what what types of tools and technologies are we using now to to address substance abuse in rural America? Well, absolutely. Um, well, first, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, Eleanor Health is, as you mentioned, focused on you know individuals and populations who are affected by substance use disorder and other mental health conditions. And we know, and as we've seen through the pandemic, just the rise in um, acknowledgement and prevalence of these conditions throughout the the country, particularly as we've seen you know, a lack of connection um, that people are having, increased anxiety and stress, that's really a, a perfect storm um, for increased prevalence of substance use disorder. And that exists in rural communities as well as urban and suburban communities. And so when we think about how we reach those in, in rural communities, it's a mix of using technology and creating strong partnerships with those entities that exist and have built trust with those communities um, that are more rural in nature. So from a technology perspective, we've certainly seen a rise in telehealth, as we discussed. Um, and so being able to access those communities through telehealth, particularly those that have strong um, broadband and internet connective capabilities, but our, our ability to connect with those even through virtual means that aren't um, video video so asynchronous um, text interaction all of those those types of care have have increased so we we see that in our work with rural communities and we also partner closely with those entities as i mentioned primary care and other community-based organizations that are within those those rural communities um, once we get somebody set up with technology which we often have to do um, in rural communities we're really able to to reach them more, more seamlessly. But for some, you know, the technology can be a barrier. And so we, we do continue to see hybrid, um, hybrid care leveraging the, the physical sites or the, the different community-based organizations already in those communities as a connective point to, to those individuals. Now, Eleanor Health is, is working in several different states, correct? Yeah, yeah, we're in, uh, we're in seven states. Um, you, know, you mentioned Massachusetts is one. We're in uh, North Carolina, New Jersey, uh, Washington, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Ohio, and Texas. That's a that's a mix of, of populations there. What are the what are the challenges? What are the specific challenges or barriers to working with in rural areas? Well, certainly, uh, you know, the density of those populations. So, you know, when you think about um, the prevalence of substance use disorder, um, you know, it's about eight to 10% of, of the U.S. is 
uh, affected by substance use disorder at any given time, but only really one out of 10 are seeking care. We do focus on engaging those nine out of 10 who aren't seeking care. So that's an important component of our model that makes uh, a presence in a rural community more sustainable. Um, but it's, it's um, you know, it's really those partnerships that, that make it sustainable um, to be able to treat populations in those communities. Um, you know, I think sometimes rural communities are, um, you know, they, I mentioned broadband, um, you know, I think historically we haven't seen broadband uh, accessible. And so when we lean too heavily on um, virtual care or technology, I think we will ultimately miss some components of, of the population. Um, you mentioned, uh, and I like the emphasis on partnerships, um, in rural areas it can be difficult to, uh, to, to find the right care providers or to, or, to, or to bring them together. How do you partner with, you mentioned primary care providers, others maybe specialists, how do you get them to, to join this network or, or to, to, to create partnerships with them? Yeah, I mean, I think um, particularly rural providers we have found are very interested in partnership. So they recognize that they're already often stretched. These are typically primary care. Um, so primary care clinicians, they're stretched. And they often don't know of resources to connect their populations with. So particularly around substance use disorder and mental health. So they're, they often are, are excited um, to create partnerships and we can partner with them. So we have, we have partnerships, let's think about uh, Western North Carolina, um, which is a rural community that, that we serve. Um, we have partnerships with primary care where a patient may be sitting with their primary care and can use the virtual capabilities within that virtual, uh, within that, sorry, that primary care practice to you know, video visit with, with our teams. And so really using that, um, that point of care as the connective point to get them connected to, to substance use disorder and mental health care, and then get using that opportunity to set patients up with technology so that they can further engage with us in the home. Uh, and you know, another thing that we, that we incorporate into our model is field-based teams. So we have teams that go out into the home and that's, I think that's particularly important in rural communities where um, there might not be a, a site um, where a patient can go spend time and where they may not be comfortable with technology yet. And so using those field-based teams to, to set up patients and then connect them back into the rest of the clinical team is something that we, that we do in those, in those rural communities. Um, the other thing that we do in, in Western North Carolina is we have you know, strong ties with community-based organizations there. So, you know, organizations that address social determinants that have good ties within the community. We work closely with, with those um, in those rural communities as well. Are there other uh, groups or organizations that you see Eleanor Health partnering with in the future? Are there other opportunities out there that that, that haven't been explored yet to, to kind of tackle this, this issue? I mean, you think about any organization that is really touching people on a, on a daily basis and building that trust. I think there are a lot of different partnership opportunities. Um, when you think about EMT organizations and ambulance organizations, um, we have partnered with um, uh, police and fire in, in previous um, partnerships where 
they are often the, the key points of connection in the community. Um, and so we've partnered with them to, to understand how we can be helpful in addressing some of the mental health needs that they often see as the sort of first line um, out into the community. Um, you know, I think there are emerging organizations that are focused on rural communities, some of the primary care, um, hybrid primary care organizations that are emerging. I think there's those are right for, for partnership where we can address some of the higher need mental health and substance use disorder um, folks that are that are presenting with those primary care, sort of rural primary care organizations. Um, so we see a lot of those partnerships. I think, um, you know, the other types of partnerships that we see is with um, technology. So we partner with um, Bamboo Health uh, and Patient Ping. They are, they help us to really use data, real-time data to know where patients are, how they're presenting, and how they're utilizing some of the ED and inpatient facilities within communities. And that's, I think, even more important to be right time, right place in rural communities. Mm, yeah, two very familiar names in the digital health space, um, which, yeah, brings me to the next question. How, you know, what new types of technology would you like to be using? Um, what out there offers hope or promise or potential for reaching out and engaging with people in rural locations? Well, I think text, um, I know it's not, a, it's not a new technology per se, but I still think, I think text-based communications is, um, you know, that asynchronous communication will continue to be important for all communities, but I think in rural communities where that, that broadband may be more spotty and asynchronous interaction or intervention may be more and more important. Um, you know, we we lean pretty heavily on data. We're a very data-driven organization. So I think as we continue to open up um, access to data, that will be more and more important for us to further understand where we can intervene and where we can provide interventions, um, that data, and really, you know, organizations that help us to bring that data to bear continue to be an important part of our, of our model. Um, Thinking of other technologies that have that have been impressive to us, um, you know, I think I think those that introduce um, at the point of care with um, whether it's pharmacy or primary care, and introduce an opportunity to make that right time connection to uh, an entity like an Eleanor Health. Those are more and more important. Again, particularly in rural communities where that touch point with the provider may be that that only touch point um, with a clinician that, that a person has over the course of six, 12 months. So I think those, those continue to be important. Again, creating that sort of coordinated, data-driven approach across an entire community, I think is really important. Yeah, I like that emphasis on data. Um, so much is, is made of that and, and where we're going with it, and especially with these new technologies, digital telehealth, AI, <laughs> everybody's pulling data in now or, or looking to pull data in. How, or for example, maybe, how do you use data to improve care? No, absolutely. So we, um, you know, we have ingested um, hundreds of millions of claims as part of our work in partnership with payers. And then we enrich those claims with our interactions and interventions with um, with our community members, which is what we call our patients at Eleanor Health. And what we found over time is we've, we've really learned various segments, um, both 
from clinical criteria as well as um, sociodemographic criteria and others, behavior-based criteria, what works, um, what uh, mode of interaction, what type of interaction, what types of touches. What we know from the data is that um, many of the inter interventions that we provide, um, the ones typically that are not fee-for-service reimbursable, you know, peer support, advocates, coaching, nurse care management, those are often the interventions that lead us to the most successful and powerful clinical and financial outcomes for our populations. And so it's really the data that's helped us to, um, you know, prove out that hypothesis that we knew from some of the academic literature um, was, was indicating strong outcomes. We've been able to prove it with, with our, you know, hundreds of thousands of interactions and assessments that we've um, uh, performed with our, with our patient population. So, you know, we know that those, those wrap services, creating meaning and purpose in people's lives, engaging with them in breaking down non-clinical barriers, those can be economic, social determinants, but they can also be creating, you know, community and relationships for people. Those are really important in mental health and addiction to successful uh, patient outcomes. And so it's really been the data um, that help, has helped to, to hone us in on the best uh, clinical interventions, the best number of touches, the best mode of, of interventions that work for each different type of patient segment. And you mentioned payers. Uh, they certainly want data <laughs> uh, to be able to prove the value of, of a treatment that they would then in turn uh, cover, support. Is that what you're seeing with with these services, with this data? Is it are payers interested in this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think behavioral health in general is, you know, pretty far behind other segments of healthcare in proving the efficacy of, of outcomes and really focusing on clinical and, and very evidence-based clinical outcomes as well as cost outcomes. So we know that. Um, people with a substance use disorder, for example, about 80% have another mental health condition, about 70% have another physical comorbidity. These are complex and costly patient populations. And without addressing the substance use disorder and mental health needs, those physical costs are driven up as well. So what we're able to show for payers is those members who we engage in our, in our care model, we see a 40 to 80% reduction in ED and inpatient utilization for those patient populations. That's a huge reduction um, because what we're doing is we, you know, you stabilize those populations and we see a reduction on the physical health side. And so instead of using the ED and inpatient, they're really stabilized in their care. No one wants to go to the emergency room. Nobody wants to go and have an inpatient stay. And really by addressing through a proven care model, um, their substance use disorder, we see that reduction. Payers, you know, payers are interested, obviously, in the macro um, economics and the impact that that we can have, and that addressing mental health and substance use disorder can have on the total cost of care. And so we do we do focus on that. They like seeing that. They also love um, seeing improvements across HEDIS and other measures. So we quality and and outcomes is really our our north star. So from a quality perspective, you know, there are um, psychometrically validated skills and screeners, you know, the PHQ-9, the GAD-7, recovery capital, substance craving scale. There are all these um, scales and screeners that have been grounded in data 
that we can show improvements over time. Um, you know, we we love seeing that. Payers love seeing that, and I think more and more they will they will start to um, require that their provider groups perform against a set of quality and cost metrics. And that's, we really feel like we're leading the way there. And how are your patients, your community members, how are they responding to these new techniques and, and, and tools? I imagine with, with the pandemic, you know, everybody was, was on a real steep learning curve for telehealth and so on and so forth. Are they, you know, are these the right tools and, and, and techniques for reaching them? Yes. So, you know, I would I think that that transition was so fascinating back in March of 2020. We went from, you know, 90 percent in person, about 10 percent virtual to, to the flip of that to 90 percent virtual over the, over the course of a week or so. And, you know, part of it obviously was, you know, we, we had to. Um, we were sort of forced by what the pandemic was was presenting in terms of, of risks. Um, uh, healthcare risk to, to everyone. And patient, some patients, it was seamless, right? Um, very adept with technology, um, had built those trusted relationships with our providers and easily transitioned into a more virtual engagement and, and interaction. Um, on top of that, you know, some of the diagnostic tools that we use had to be mailed to patients. Um, you know, we, we leaned in on that trying to meet patients where they are and, and meeting their preferences. Um, but some other patients, you know, really struggled with understanding the technology, um, really ramping up on it. And so we had to deploy teams to help them um, get set up on technology, get the right, um, you know, have their own devices, the right devices in place to be able to, to connect with our with our teams. And so it really was a mix of um, competency in in moving, and that that's to be expected. Um, and that's really where I think the future of hybrid care, where we meet patients where they are with the technologies that they are most comfortable with, um, but also acknowledge that healthcare and health interventions, particularly for sensitive, um, stigmatized conditions, a relationship is really important. Um, you know, we're social creatures, and creating those opportunities to build those relationships in person, we think is 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 and will continue to be an important part. Um, you know, while we continue to have about 90% of our care is delivered virtually, about 100% of our community members want to or have had some type of in-person intervention with us. And so I think that's an important flag to say, you know, we may be delivering a lot of virtual care and that's really important, but so too is making sure that we mix it with, you know, asynchronous technology in person. I mean, that's what the data, again, if we, if we lean back on data, that's what the data tells us is important to people. Yeah, um, with the pandemic, we also, a lot of we also saw a lot of changes in regulatory and policy uh, issues. Uh, are there any specific regulatory or policy issues that make it more difficult for you to, to treat people in rural areas with this technology? Well, um, historically, there's been um, a, a regulation called the Ryan Haight Act, which requires that um, for somebody who is receiving uh, medication-assisted treatment, which is, you know, for our purposes, we, we do prescribe Suboxone, Vivitrol, um, Buprenorphine, 
for those medications, it, um, the Ryan Hate Act has required that every person have, a, have an in-person interaction at least once a year. That was suspended as part of, of COVID, just recognizing that those in-person interactions were um, not safe for, for many um, because of the unknowns around COVID. So the Ryan Hate Act has, has continued to be suspended. And so there isn't a requirement to have an in-person intervention or interaction with a, with a, a patient. Um, when prescribing these um, controlled medications, but you know we we aren't sure um, where that's gonna gonna go. Again, we have we have you know locally based field based teams in our seven in our seven markets, so it won't necessarily impact us from a business perspective, but it certainly will impact patients, um, particularly in rural communities. So you know if we we talked about how technology ex- helps to extend into rural communities. That's because, as, as I mentioned earlier, having a, a physical site um, and having that infrastructure in a rural community is often not sustainable. And so if we're reaching those rural community members solely through technology and we put back a, a requirement for an in-person interaction, that will really reduce access um, for those communities. And so we continue to you know, advocate for the continued suspension or smart um, smart use of in-person interventions um, and not not sort of hold us to and hold all providers to to that in-person inter- intervention. Um, you know, we have to be thoughtful about these types of things. There's always opportunity for for abuse, but um, you know, we think there's an opportunity to improve uh, where things were before with the Ryan Hate Act. Okay. One last question: um, How do you see your work? evolving? How do you see the field of substance abuse treatment evolving? I think a lot of the things that you mentioned, I think data, first and foremost, um, I think we see data and particularly around evidence-based care models really emerging. Um, Whole person, evidence-based care models, ones that are focused on the whole person in value-based reimbursement structures emerging as you know, winners across this category. We know this is a chronic condition. We know it needs to be treated. Um, over time and longitudinally, it's historically been treated in much a, of a sort of cottage industry without evidence-based practices, often, you know, leaning heavily on uh, personal experience um, for those who are in this, this space. And, you know, we think that um, there is a strong emergence of data and evidence that will really continue um, over the next couple of years. And, it's the, the combination of an evidence-based clinical practice and a value-based reimbursement practice, which is what, what we do at Eleanor Health, that will be the, the winning categories, really proving the outcomes, being able to show the impact that you're having on, on populations um, at a cost level as well as a quality level will continue to be important as the, the data and evidence uh, and metrics and measures um, in behavioral health continue to emerge. So. We're, we're, you know, we're excited to be at the forefront of all of that. Um, you know, we have value-based reimbursement models. We put ourselves at risk for populations. We're really the only ones that are, that are doing that. Um, and we, we believe so, so much in our clinical model and the impact that it can have that we think others, um, others will, will soon follow. Okay. Corbin, thanks very much for, for chatting with me today. This has been a fascinating conversation about a a very uh, serious topic. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Appreciate you having me.
All right. Um, thank you very much for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast, and we'll be back next Tuesday with more health industry insights.